Well, we are super pumped about this new facility. We're super pumped about what God's going to do in our church for those of us that are here. And we're super pumped about how he's going to leverage our willingness to serve him and follow him to impact our community. Somebody said, Ben, are, are you just very, very excited about having a cool new space? Well, of course. I mean, of course we are. But I'm most excited that God's given us an opportunity to bless our community. Now, not everybody will walk through our doors. Of course not. But many will. Many will. And God will use that to touch their lives. And the reason I know that's true is we've seen him do that to, to numbers, scores, hundreds of people over the last eight years. And you're looking at one right now. Me and my family, we've been blessed by what God has done through this church. I, I didn't know that when we started this church with a small group of people, that the people that would be most blessed would be the folks who were helping make it happen. And yet when you read the pages of your Bible, you discover that's true. The people who get on board with God's agenda in their lives, but then also God's agenda in the world, that they leverage what he's doing in them to bless those around them, well, they're the ones that experience the biggest blessings. And that's why we're so thrilled for so many of you who've stepped up to serve. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you sacrifice so much, and I know it's not easy. When I look around at the people who make this church happen, here's one thing that's obvious. These aren't people that were sitting around at home twiddling their thumbs thinking, I have nothing to do. I'm bored. Why don't I try serving at church? Now, that's not what happened. These are quality people who were busy and had lives and jobs and kids and sports, and they decided that that wasn't enough, that that wasn't getting them to the goal of passionate pursuit of God. So they decided, almost every one of them, to carve out some extra time or to make some extra time, or to stop doing some activity so they can make time to engage God. So if you're really busy and you're not feeling like you're quite hitting it, maybe one of the things for you to consider is to start plugging in in a direct way with what God is doing in the world. And in short, what God is doing in the world is He's calling people to Himself. He, he wants to reveal to people what his heart for them is, and he wants to reveal to people that unique way that he's wired them to participate in calling others to himself. It's a really cool cycle. Now today, I'm going to take you into the second week of our Discovering God's Will for Your Life series. How do I know God's will? And last week, we shared a few basic principles just as a kind of way of setting the, setting the 30,000 foot view approach to what we're doing. But today, I'm going to get down into just a little bit of nitty gritty stuff, really just one practical principle for us to walk away with. You know, there have been times in my life where I felt a certain amount of time crunch or pressure, and I needed to make a decision. I needed to figure out what I was going to do about an opportunity that had a relatively short window or had a significant amount of data I couldn't quite fully get my hands around. And I remember in those moments in life, like, where do I go to college? Um, should I ask her to marry me? Uh, should we move? Should we take that opportunity and move where I didn't have all the data I certainly didn't have a crystal ball to see the future and I needed to make a decision with a little bit of data or or in a, in a compressed time frame and I remember feeling the pressure of that I remember thinking wouldn't it be great if God would just like come down for just a moment and say hey Ben x and y I want you to do y I want you to go this way I got to tell you in, in over 30 years of following the Lord, I, I've never had him with that kind of clarity stand in front of me and say, here are your paths, this is the one. I, I've never had him do it in that specific way. But there have, even though I didn't get that, there have been regular moments where I have sensed 
God's saying in one way or another, and I'm going to show you one of those ways today, God's saying, Ben, this is, this is what I want you to do. But what do you do when you have a compressed period of time or you don't have all the data and you've got to make an important decision? How do you discern God's will for you in that moment? How do you do that? I mean, do you, do you just open your Bible and go, all right, God, guide my finger. Turn to... Yeah, yeah. I, I guess you could do that. It doesn't work out too well, usually for most folks. There's some interesting stuff in the Bible that, you know, if you put your finger in the wrong place, you might find yourself doing some, some crazy things. You know, that's not really the way God wants to reveal. But there is an accelerated way of discerning God's will, an accelerated way that will take you farther and faster to where he wants you to go. There is a way, and it's revealed right in the pages of your Bible. Before I tell you the specifics, I want to give you a little background story in your Bible found in the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, the, book of first and the books of First and Second Kings, they're about kings. That's what they're about. And, uh, and this particular story is about a guy by the name of Solomon and his sons. Solomon was the last king of Israel over a united kingdom. There was northern and southern, and there was a bit of a schism between them that had been brewing for a while. They had slightly different cultures. The southern kingdom, they spoke a little funny and ate grits. And then, then the northern kingdom, they talked a little faster. And yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what it, what it was like, but, but there was a bit of a cultural divide that had been brewing for a while anyway. And Solomon and his father David and Saul, they, they ruled over the whole thing, but when Solomon died, there were two sons that had particular followings, one in the southern kingdom and one in the northern kingdom. Their names were Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Solomon, being the wisest man in the world, thought it would be funny to name his sons with rhyming names, I guess, Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam. And, and Rehoboam had the formal title of king over the United Kingdom. But there was trouble in the north where there was some real allegiance to his brother. And now, if you've studied history at all, you know that often at the transition of power in a monarchy, there can be some struggle over who really has the upper hand. There's the, the legal way that it falls, but having positional authority, I'm the legal king, doesn't necessarily mean you have the allegiance of the people. And so Jeroboam had the allegiance of the ten tribes to the north, the bulk of the kingdom, but Rehoboam had the allegiance of the two tribes to the south where the seat of power was and where the cultural center and the educational center of the kingdom was. Well, Solomon had done some great things in his life, but he left the people a bit haggard. He, he built a, an amazing temple for God. It, it was an expensive thing, and he imposed a formal tax on people that they didn't have a choice to pay as a way of financing this thing. And not only did he build a, build a nice temple for the Lord, he built an incredible palace, and the Bible gives us this, this I think, was a sad passage, that the house he built for himself was greater than the, the, the temple he built for the Lord, and, and the tax on the people was just exhausting. So when, when Rehoboam becomes the king, and there's already a schism happening, he realizes, I've got to do something, because I feel like this thing's a little unstable, and I don't really know exactly what to do. I don't really know exactly what to do. So here, here's, here's what he did. He thought, I don't have all the wisdom in myself. I don't have a crystal ball to see the future. I feel like I need to do something now. I don't know how much time I have before this thing falls apart. So he did something actually pretty wise. The Bible says that he called together the elders in the community, those people that had that informal 
but powerful influence. They had relational networks. They had business dealings. They had extended families. They had environments where their influence was powerful. Most of them were a little bit up in age. That, that tends to be what happened. You live your life in such a way long enough that people begin to see in you certain qualities and characteristics. They think you have a certain amount of wisdom. They want to be around you. They want to hear from you. They rise to the level of elder in the community. And Rehoboam called the elders together. And he said, fellas, what should I do? This thing is unstable. I don't know how much time we have. We can't see the future. And, and I want to maintain the glory that my father Solomon has brought to the people. Now, the elders, they, they were wise people. And, and they, they spoke to Rehoboam and they said this. Your dad, they said, taxed us so heavily that, that it was a burden on our back. And yeah, the, the, the kingdom was marvelous and unified. There was a lot of great things, but this would be a really good time to kind of back off a bit. And, and if you back off a bit, they said, if you, if you quit dipping so aggressively into people's lives, if you back off a bit, I think they said to him, you'll, you'll regain their hearts. And what, once you have their hearts, Rehoboam, once you have that trust, well, then you can start dreaming about your legacy. But right now, there needs to be a time of calm and peace. Rehoboam took their advice in, and he, he listened to it for a few moments, and he thought, now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do in a few moments. And then the Bible says, if you read in 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12, the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, what Rehoboam did is, because he was young, I guess, and inexperienced, and in a hurry, and he thought maybe he knew best, and after all, he was the king, and who are they to tell him what to do? Maybe, I don't know exactly. We don't get the full emotional profile of what's going on in his life. But maybe because he thought he was king and had that positional authority that, that he didn't necessarily have to listen to the advice he was given. And the Bible says that there were a group of young people around Rehoboam, guys his own age, that were cheering him on. You're the king, finally. You get to do what you want to do. Now is go time. And the Bible says that Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders and instead listened to the people around him who told him what he wanted to hear. You're awesome. You're great. You're powerful. And the Bible says he begins to describe kind of where he is, where Rehoboam is, by saying things like this. My, my dad, he, like, he whipped you with reeds. I'm going to take sticks and break your back. So you see the hubris and the arrogance of this guy. He says, my, my dad's waist is about you know, his stature. He, he, my little finger has more power than my dad had. And the elders are just shaking their head going, this is not going to go good. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 8, look at what it says. But he, Rehoboam, forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Now, I don't know if you know the story or not, but even if you don't, how do you think this went for Rehoboam? Not good. In fact, what happens is there's a schism in the kingdom. They literally go into civil war, north, north versus south. And Jeroboam held up in, in, in the mountains in the north. Ten tribes rally around him, and they split. And now there is a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And for the rest of the history of your Bible, this schism creates challenges and difficulty. And it affects the story of Israel. 
No longer are they a unified people displaying God's glory to the world. Now there are broken, fragmented people who have moments of glory, but no lasting impact. For hundreds of years, until Jesus comes, but politically they've never really recovered by that point. It's, it's a terrible thing because Rehoboam doesn't take the advice, doesn't fully weigh the advice of the elders and instead surrounds himself with people who tell him what he wants to hear. My friends, there's huge lessons for us in this. There are huge implications for you and me for understanding God's will for our lives. See, we believe that God has a general will that applies to all people at all times. One of the pieces of God's general will is that he wants everybody in a relationship with him. So if you want to know what God's doing, he's calling people to himself. That's what he does. He's revealing his heart. He's giving them opportunity in personal and in general ways to discover him and his agenda for the world. General will. It applies to you. It applies to me in relatively the same way. God is no respecter of person. So what he wants for me and what he wants for you in that regard is similar. We also believe that there's kind of a moral will of God that is broadly applicable. And this moral will of God, what it does is it tells us largely how to act. It applies to pretty much everybody in the same way. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. It doesn't matter, you know, what your heritage is or what you know or how you were raised or where you're from. These moral things that God wants for people are largely the same. And as we follow his will, the blessings tend to flow. But beyond his kind of general will and his moral will, we believe that God has a personal will for you. For the rubber of your life meets the road. For you're making decisions and figuring out whether or not you're going to move or take the job or buy the thing or leverage this way. Or This is exactly where, where Rehoboam was. What do I do now that I've got this opportunity in front of me? Now that I see a few challenges, what do I do? And he starts so well. He starts so well. But he doesn't finish well at all. And I want better for you. I've been a pastor long enough to see people who have started so well. I mean, they, they, they come to God, often engage in his church, and they're burning bright. But then stuff happens. Life happens. You know how this goes. Details change. The energy and the excitement of the newness, maybe the, the honeymoon phase wears off. And they, they, they flitter away. I want to show you one practical principle that, honestly, you probably already know. In fact, I don't think anything today is going to be all that surprising to you. But I want, I want us to elevate it one more time, maybe. Shine a little light on it. And then talk about practically how to do this consistently. And how to do it in a helpful way. Because this one principle of discovering God's will in your personal life and helping you make those decisions you need to make when you don't have the future in front of you, when you don't have all the time you need, and you don't know all the facts, this one principle will take you faster and farther than you'll ever go on your own. And it's contained right in the pages of your Bible. Because before we get to that one last thing, I'm going to stretch it out just a little further. Let me share with you a couple of basic truths. We believe that it's your surrender to the known will of God that sets you up to discover the parts we don't know. I said last week, you and I already know more of God's will than we follow. 
And as we follow what we know, we take that step, then the next step becomes more clear to us. The biblical language for that is called surrender. God, I'm going to surrender to what I know you want me to do. And as I do that, you're going to show me the next thing. You're going to show me what to do. And you often won't show me the end and the exact steps to get there like my GPS does. That's That's not often, usually not the way God works. But you'll show me the next step to take. I share this often with high school students when I was a chaplain in a high school, and I would say to them, you remember the passage in the Bible where God says that his word is like a lamp to our feet? It's not a, a, a flashlight showing 50 yards down the line. It's a lamp giving one or two candles worth of, of light to show you just that next step. But as you move the light with you, you see the next step. So as you and I dis- discover God's will by taking our steps and we surrender to that, the next thing becomes clear. And here, here's one more participation. One more, one more uh, issue for us. Participation, and I wanna, I'm going to stretch you on this one. Participation, not contemplation, makes God's will more clear. So the first thing is, is following what you know and surrendering to that. The second thing is participation and not simply thinking about it. When you look at the pages of God's word, there's often a period of time where people have a hunch of something they want to do and they think about it. But usually the heroes of your Bible, the people that we hold up as an example, they didn't just think. Pretty quickly in the dynamic, they started doing and engaging. We have found in our church that people who participate tend to grow at an accelerated rate. Now, some of this is personality-based. If you're more of a thinker-plotter type, this may stretch you a bit. Some of you are more action-oriented. You're your method is kind of like ready, fire, aim, <laughs> as opposed to ready, aim, fire. And so, so you're like, yeah, get it down to action. But, but both are true. There's a period of time for contemplation, of course. God, I need to think through. I need to take the facts and wait out. That's very biblical. But contemplation alone doesn't actually reveal much of God's will to you. It only takes you to the starting line. It is participating. It's taking the first step and actually doing the actions that begins to reveal God's word. Because the way it works is one step at a time. So we are regularly around here pushing you to do, to engage, to take that, you you know our slogan, take the next bold step. Because I know this, you don't even have to know that what I'm saying is true. If you'll begin to walk with God and participate at the level he gives you opportunity, it'll change everything for you. You don't even have to know the end. You just have to start following him. And some of that following him is known. He loves for his people to come together and worship him in large group settings. He loves that. He loves it when we get together in small groups and we discover his word or we get, we get friendships made in a more intimate environment. He, he lo- that's just part of his revealed will to everybody. He loves it when we take seriously our sin and we say, God, I don't, I don't want to be casual about your will for my life. And I don't want to act like I can do whatever I want. I really want to follow you. And God, I'm sorry for what I've done. He loves that about us. He loves it when we do that. And he, he takes delight in showing us more of the path for us when we do those things. But it is your participation, not simply your contemplation. Now, here's the challenge with that. <laughs> Sometimes contemplation And thinking about it releases us from the urgency that we felt when we started thinking maybe there's something we need to do. It goes something like this. 
We're sitting in a service, we have a conversation, we read a passage, something crosses our minds, and we think, I should, I should do something with that. I, I, I should probably, you know, really start a date night with my spouse. I should probably really um, get serious about getting free from the stronghold of debt in our family. I should probably find a way to make sure I can serve other people and not just make it all about me. We feel these moments, and for many of us, we'll think about that. Well, thinking about it sometimes releases us from that sense of urgency and that sense of, I need to do this, I should do this, God would be happy if I do this. And in the releasing of that urgency, we don't do anything. I think the enemy loves for you to contemplate God's will for your life and to think about it and think about it and think about it and to pray about it and pray about it and pray about it as long as you don't actually do anything. And sometimes, depending on our religious heritage, you know, the way we were raised, we'll we'll have these senses of this is what I should do and we'll feel a certain amount of guilt because we don't. And then we like, we contemplate, we think through and that guilt sometimes can be so overwhelming it actually holds us in our place. All of that is set up to share with you this next passage of how to kind of jump those hurdles. Are you ready? Proverbs 1.5, here's what it says. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. This is one passage of over a hundred in your Bible that basically says the same thing. You want to discover God's will? You want to know what to do in that situation where you don't have all the facts or all the time? You want to engage at a level that will take you farther and faster than you could ever go on your own? Here's the principle. Seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. And this verse is not an invitation for you to sit around and think about something and then come to the conclusion about how wise you are. That's, that's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying, come on your own to the wisest kernel of the thing in front of you and then you'll have the magic key to open the door. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that there's something powerful and accelerating and clarifying when you and I go out of our way to get out of our own thinking and seek wisdom. Like Rehoboam did on the front end before he messed it up. He gathered the elders who had had a lifetime of experience, who had seen things over time, knew the pattern of how people were acting, had the pulse of the people. He gathered them and said, what what should I do? What What would you do if you were me? There is great power when you and I seek wisdom. One of the reasons why we do small groups around here is we think that while we can't make you have friends, we can't go, hey, here's a lottery. We're going to pull names out of the hat. Okay, all of you now, you're in group one. You're going to be best friends. You can't do that, can you? But we can say if you sign up for a group, maybe that's the right environment to make spiritual friendships where people are going to have diverse life experiences. And we're over time, it won't happen immediately, but over time, if you're friendly and if you'll engage and participate, as opposed to just wait and see if it's going to happen, if you'll participate, what might happen is you might get some friends so that when you come to one of these crossroads where you have shortened time horizon or you don't know the future or it's bigger than you, you can have conversations in a God-oriented kind of way that might give you wisdom to consider and think about. Pray about 
And they, there might be people there that can open the door of clarity to you on a level you'll never get on your own. Do you remember the Solomon we were talking about earlier? God comes to him one day and says, before he's ever king, he's, he's living with the priest, and God comes to him and says, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. Anything you want. And I'm going to tell you right now, if God ever came to me and said that, that'd be dangerous. Whatever you want, Ben, it's yours. Just one wish. Of course, I know how this goes. You ask for a, a thousand wishes. That's, that's what you ask for, right? No, he, he, here's, here's what Solomon does. He says, God, there's one thing I want. I, I want wisdom. And God goes, oh, right answer. And because you didn't ask for wealth or long life or blessing, I'm going to give you those things, but you're going to be the wisest. There's great wisdom in seeking wisdom. But beyond just being wise, you can avoid pitfalls and hurdles that other people can see long before you can see them for, the, for yourselves. How many of you would say this is true? You have a friend who couldn't see the forest for the trees. They were so encumbered in a situation that they couldn't even see how detrimental it was. She didn't know how terrible that guy was, and she didn't take the advice of the friends, or maybe the friends never said anything. And so she went ahead and engaged that thing or married the one, and whoo, it's ugly now. And everybody around knew it, but they, sometimes we are so stuck. So what God has done is he's given us brothers and sisters in Christ with diverse experiences and exposure and often an objectivity that we don't have. And he says, if you'll engage wisdom here in the community of faith, you'll go further and faster. And the best learning will happen not because you made the mistakes, but because you learned from somebody else's mistakes. I don't want my kids to have to do what a lot of dumb teenagers end up doing. And so by doing them, discover they don't want to do it anymore. I want them to objectively look at other kids around them and go, they're idiots. I don't want anything to do with that. I'd like to avoid where that's going. So like we're regularly walking you know, around a mall or we're walking through a store or something. Like the other day we were having lunch and on the way out the restaurant, there was like, it looked like about a 14-year-old kid sitting by his car smoking. I don't know where his parents were. And I know that happens. It's not the worst thing in the world. But, you know, I'm talking about my kids now. I'm not talking in an objective sense whether God loves this kid or not. I looked at my boy. I looked at that guy. I said, that guy over there is stupid. I don't even know him. He's the dumbest guy I've seen all day. <laughs> my John Ryan's like, Dad, that's not very nice. I said, look at him. He's like 14 and smoking. He's dumb. You know what I, Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show my kids how stupid people can be so that they'll learn from... I want to learn from your stupidity. I don't want to have to learn only from my own. Am I right? Hey, I want to look. Listen, when Jill and I have struggled with certain marriage issues, we made a classic mistake. We would, we didn't, we've never really like broadcasted our stuff, but in our closeness, we would sometimes talk to people who were right where we were in life. And they had same kinds of problems. And so when we would share our stuff, kind of seeking a little bit of wisdom or looking for a little emotional cover, they would go, oh, I see your point. Clearly, it's all her fault. When I would talk to my friends, it was always Jill's fault. Always. And you know what? I believed them. Because that's exactly what I wanted to hear. We discovered, though, that there were other people around us that God had put in our community. There were family and friends and a relatively small circle, when you talk about marriage issues, that we could go to. And ultimately, we ended up going to a counselor who had talked to hundreds of people, and we chatted about our stuff. And they had wisdom and perspective that the people just like us didn't have. And you know what happened as we listened to their wisdom? God's will for our marriage became clearer. 
We moved faster and farther than we would ever get on our own. Here's the truth. The quickest, most direct path to discovering the will of God for your life is through the wise counsel of others. Other people who are connected to Jesus, who are leaning in, who are participating and growing, you can sit down with them and have an honest conversation and they can deposit wisdom in your life. And it will catapult you forward to the thing that God has for you. Much quicker than you and I, and we should do this, so that these are not exclusive, much quicker than me taking 40 days to pray about something. There have been moments where I didn't have 40 days. Now, I still need to pray because sometimes God will deposit by his spirit special nuggets in me. And it will be beyond what I could ever come up with my own or anybody else can come up with. So we're not just relying on human wisdom. But God saw fit to tell us in his word, his second most clear revelation of himself in the world. First is Jesus, the second is the scripture. God saw fit to tell us in his word that you and I should seek wisdom because in the seeking of wisdom of other people leaning in with Jesus and going in the direction of God, it would catapult us further and farther and faster than we ever thought we could go. Certainly been true in my life. When we have hit, Jill and I have hit the financial thing, you sit down with people who are where we want to be. <laughs> not who are where we are. When I talk to people who are where I am, they don't have any more wisdom than I have. I talk to people who are, listen, if I want a financial counsel, everybody's equal in God's sight, but some of us are just better with money. So I'm not going to go talk to somebody that's stuck where I am. If I'm struggling in my marriage, I'm not going to talk to my best friend who's struggling in his marriage. I want to find that marriage where I say, I see God in them. And I'm going to say to that person, and I've done this sort of thing throughout my entire life. I've also had perfect examples where I've completely ignored it and it's cost me. But when I've done it right, I go up to them and I say something like, could I buy you lunch? Now listen, most people would love to have their lunch bought. But they would. And then when we're sitting down, I say something like, I, some of you are in this room, you're going to know. That, now this, I'm revealing my modus operandi, all right? I'll say something like, hey, we have this opportunity. And I try to lay it out quickly. What do you think about that? What would you do? Or, I have this challenge in front of me. What would you do? There's a group of people who help lead this church from a 30,000-foot from a view. And we talk about the opportunities and challenges in front of this church. And they're all wise people, significantly older than me. That's a joke. I, they're, they're in the room. I'm just kidding. They're, they're all wise people. <laughs> Total kidding. I'll buy you all lunch. Um, but they're, they're much wiser, and regularly as we've pitched ideas, now they, they want me to lead and they, they free the path, but they'll regularly say, hey, we want to think about this as we do the thing. We want to be, be careful here in this place. It's wise to seek wise counsel. And when you do it, you grow. Listen, don't just chat with your girlfriends about raising kids who all have kids in the same age you do. That's emotionally comforting. It gives you cover it removes the sense of obligation because they're where you are and you will fool yourself into thinking that you've actually make, made motion yeah. find the lady who has kids 10 years older than yours and you say to them please tell me how did you deal with this and then shut up and listen i'm not saying you have to do everything they tell you but seriously contemplate what they're telling you so who has wise counsel? Let me give you three quick ideas. You might want to write these down. Choose people who are where you want to be. 
not where you are. Don't get money advice if you're in your 20s from somebody in their 20s who has been a trust fund child and has never had to worry and think about things because you won't be able to hang with their level of spending. Choose people who are where you want to be. So they're now there where you aren't and you want to get generally where they're going. Number two, choose people who have nothing to lose by telling you the truth. We all have the propensity, like Rehoboam, to gather people around us who tell us what we want to hear. Choose people who have nothing to lose by telling you the truth. Number three, choose people who show they have a servant's heart over time, or if you know them, they're for you. Some wise people have agendas. That's okay. That's p- sometimes that's a part of being wise. In fact, everybody has an agenda. When you're looking for wise counsel, find somebody who has demonstrated a servant's heart over time. They get God's agenda, and they're regularly leveraging their stuff for God's agenda. They're regularly leveraging their time, or they've demonstrated over time a heart for you. Like in, in my category, I have a, a pretty healthy relationship with my parents. I regularly chat with my parents. They've demonstrated over time a heart for me, and I believe at the core of my being that they simply want me to do what God wants me to do. I don't think they're trying to control my life. And so I regularly can go to them. I have a few trusted friends, mentors in ministry, and I regularly, I I bet there isn't two weeks that goes by since we've begun this church and long before that I don't call one of those guys and I say, tell me what you think about this. Because they demonstrate over time a heart for me. Listen, don't go to, like if you have enemies, I don't know if we have enemies, but if you have, don't go to people that like have demonstrated a heart against you or they don't have a clear, discernible servant's heart in, in God's agenda. And don't go to the person who's just like harsh. Find somebody who's leaned in and had a heart for you and just start talking and at some point quit and listen. It will catapult you, friends. It's not the entire picture of how to discern God's will. But it's an important point that I feel like in our culture, and if I could be candid, even in our church, we don't do it enough. Listen, every parent in this room, you've seen junior high girls do this all the time. It's a junior high kind of mentality where they gather their friends, they share their sob stories, they hug and cry, and they're going to be BFFs forever. All they've done is emotionally bled on each other. And I guess there's a place for that. But it doesn't move you to the place of wisdom and happiness and wholeness and and walking in God's will. It tends to keep you right where you are. And some of us never grew out of that. What would you do if you were me? All right, here's three important questions, and then we'll take some next steps. When you sit down with these folks and you buy their lunch or or you're in a small group and and you talk, here's, here's an idea. You say these things. Are any of the options I'm considering outside the boundaries of Scripture? Because God's will will never take you outside of God's word. And God, God's not going to tell you, yes, I know she's mean. Go ahead and, go ahead and kill her. Ain't going to happen. You know, I know it would be easier if she were gone. Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> never, God's will is never going to take you outside of God's word. That's why you got to come and submit yourself to teaching and get yourself in the scripture and get in a small group and learn because the more you know of God's word, the more his will is more clear. Number two, what do you think the wise thing for me to do is? Boy, this, this is like humbling and it's, it's helpful to just put yourself in the position of learner. A, a willingness to be taught is essential here. 
I'm, I'm willing to be taught by your wisdom. I, I may not do it, but I want it to impact me. I want to think about it. I want to consider it. I want to consider it fairly and honestly. I want to vet it out. I mean, after all, a disciple is simply a learner. Someone who's being taught the ways of God. Number three. What would you do if you were me? Like if you were in my situation, know what you know that I don't know, and you've got 10 years on me or 20 years on me, or you've been here before, you've been through a situation, what would you do if you were me? These questions and your ability to listen, take it in, prayerfully consider it, they'll take you further and faster. Can I be honest with you? Some of you believe you have significant friendships. In the Christian world, we've given it a buzzword. We call it community. And you're so proud of your community. And when you think about church, your biggest criticism is there isn't enough community. Of course, the Bible talks about that. When I have vetted out some of these groups as an outsider, that sometimes these issues pop up in church, here's what I've discovered. Very often, people have traded a sense of connection. They've opted for that instead of on occasion telling each other truths that people don't want to hear. In the search for community, make sure that you're always open to having people talk to you and tell you, no, you're always negative. And the last six places you have been, it was always their fault. Do you realize that the only common denominator in all the problems is you? Listen, if you don't have friends like that, you don't have biblical community. And if that's really what you're looking for, No Christian, no church can really provide that because we're called to share with each other truth in a way that transforms us. I hate it when our church board looks at me and says, oh, oh, we got to be careful here because I'm God's man of faith and power. I have all the wisdom. I hate that. But I need that. And you do too. Don't ever trade connection for truth. Keep truth. And when you raise yourself up as a person who's willing to hear from the wisdom of others, people will not have a hard time and you won't have to have hit the wall and be splattered emotionally all over the place. People will be able to come to you and say, hey, I I love you. I just want to tell you this thing, something I'm seeing. I could be wrong, but maybe you want to consider this. You realize you're, you're just a complainer. And it seems like one of the ways you don't engage is you've got to find fault with people and things around you. All right, next steps. Let's go. You ready? Here we go. Some next steps. Next step A. <laughs> I believe, friends, Jesus has a profound plan for your life. But the first step really is beginning a relationship with him. I'd love for you to do that today if you're not in a relationship with Jesus. I'd love for you to just make him the Savior and Lord of your life. It goes very simple. God, I'm not perfect. Your word calls me a sinner. I don't even like that word. It's just true. And I need you to forgive me. I need you to set things right between you and me. And I don't want to just be set right and let go. I want you to lead my life. We call that Savior and Lord or forgiver and leader, whatever you're comfortable, whatever connects with you. And it begins, honestly, just by an acknowledgement of your heart I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the way. And the Bible says you confess it with your mouth. It literally says Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord of the universe. We believe if you do that, you, you begin a relationship with Jesus. You get saved. You get born again. You start following him. If you want to do that, you can check the boxes and act your faith. And when I pray in a moment, and I pray about these things, you can say the word amen. 
Amen simply means whatever Ben just said, I agree with that. Let it be so. Let it be so in my life. And then you find a way in your own heart with your own mouth that Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. You can use my words as long as they reflect your heart. If you want to do that, check next step A. My next step B, you want to go public with your faith and say, I'm not ashamed. We sang it this morning. I'm not ashamed of the one who saved my soul. I want the world to know. Um, next baptism will be the first one in our new building. It's going to be spectacular. Spectacular. And next step C, I want to join small group or small groups, and then you just put the number in the box. If you need information, put the number and say, need info, because if you just put the number, we're expecting you to show up, all right? So next, that's all you got to do is sign up. That's it. And then somebody will take the card, contact you. It's easy, one-step sign up. All right, a little honesty here, right? Next step D. I have a tendency to be like Rehoboam. And the truth is, I need to humble myself and listen to wise counselors. Listen, if, if, like, if, if I said that, if I was talking today, you feel like maybe that's where you are, don't, don't wallow in shame. Confess it and move on. And take a step today and say, God, that's me. And I'm done being Rehoboam. Just dismissing everybody else's wisdom and only listening to what I want to hear. Next step, E. Some of us in the room, and I think this is true for some of us, I tend to contemplate too much and participate too little or too slowly. Today, I want to take a step to change that. I don't know exactly what step you need to take, but probably acknowledging that that's you, and you tend to get stuck in the thinking as opposed to the step taking. If that's you, just check the box. And today, commit with God to God by your help. That's going to cease. It's going to begin to cease to be a tendency in my life. Let's pray about those things right now. Lord Jesus, God, I'm so grateful for your word. It, despite all the debate about whether it's true or not and what some archaeologist finds, or God, it's so real. And it reveals so much of your heart and so practical in our lives. Thank you for the gift of your word. God, today I want to lift up folks like me who have too often not sought counsel and only brought pain into our lives by failing to follow your word here. God, today we're taking steps. Some of us are going to get into groups and we're going to be disclosing maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. Some of us need to adjust some calendar just to make time to be around other followers of Jesus. Because they help us. They spur us on. We encourage one another. God, some of us in the room are taking that first step in your will, that first big step of making you our Lord and Savior. We're saying, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to reconnect with the Creator. I want to do that through Jesus, the Lord of this world. I want to make him the Lord of my life. God, we commit this to you. Make us people who are so passionate about you and your will that whatever we need to do to learn, to grow, or to change, we're willing to do it. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen.